Welcome to Rocktown Emergencies, a podcast that focuses on emergency services in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. It includes law enforcement, fire departments, rescue squads, volunteer and career, and others throughout the emergency services industry. Now, here's your host, Paul Helmuth. This week, we talked to Lieutenant Rod Pollard with the Harrisonburg Police Department. Lieutenant Pollard is the coordinator for the police department's restorative justice program. This program is an alternative approach to crime within the city of Harrisonburg. So the restorative justice program actually started in the police department in 2015. There was a collaboration between the Harrisonburg Police Department and some of our external partners, such as the Fairfield Center, James Madison University, EMU, the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, the city school districts, K through 12, and they had an opportunity to come together, provide or share resources amongst each other, and allow the police department to have a resource such as restorative justice. So what, what is restorative justice? Because it's, it's different than handcuffing someone and taking them to jail. It looks at it differently, correct? Absolutely. It's, it's completely different than what you would view as the traditional uh, justice system. It's an alternative program that we have an opportunity that we can identify certain situations where the parties involved that are willing to participate can um, take an, uh, an alternative path to the judicial system and go through a process where the focus of the process is um, addressing the harms that were caused to all parties involved and out of those harms determining obligations and then as a group of of, as a collective process and a circle process coming together for a a resolution that at the end repairs those harms rebuilds trusts and rebuilds relationships amongst all parties give me an example of a crime that would be committed that in the process that they would go through for a restorative justice. So we're we're very fortunate, I think, for the Harrisonburg Police Department and very progressive. Uh, Our chief, Eric English, allows us to have a lot of latitude with the program. So we don't define the program to a specific crime. We intake misdemeanor offenses and felony offenses. We intake juvenile offenders and adult offenders. So we're very fortunate in that when we look at an incident, it's truly based more on the, the people involved and are they willing to participate in the process. So an example of one of those processes would have been a felony property damage and larceny to a local business where a victim was, was victimized by four offenders in the area. You have to approach both parties, correct? That is correct. Uh, it's imperative that that both parties are willing to participate. It will start with the offender, that when the police department goes out to investigate a, an incident or, or a crime, there has to be some ownership from the offender to accept responsibility, to accept his part in the crime, and is willing to participate in a process where he is acknowledging his involvement. Okay. So once that offender is willing to do that, um, then I guess you uh, approach the other party, who would be the victim, to see if they would also be willing to participate. Correct. The victim would then be approached by the officer, and 
they would have an opportunity to speak with the officer. The officer would talk to them about our restorative justice practice and the willingness for the offender to participate and to see if they had an interest in moving forward with this process. Okay. Once you get both parties to agree, it goes to a committee, correct? It, the referral is what we call it. The referral will actually go to the um, police coordinator, which is a position that I currently hold since 2007, 2017, and the coordinator will then review the facts and then create a synopsis of the event and send it to a referral committee, which is made up of some of our external partners that can take an objective look at the incident and then give a, an opinion as to whether they believe the case is appropriate should be moved forward with restorative justice. And, and those external partners, again, you had Eastern Mennonite University, James Madison University, and the Fairfield Center. Um, Commonwealth's Attorney's Office as well. And then it, I'm assuming there is a police department representative or, is, or the coordinator sits on that or, or not? It, the coordinator does not sit on that referral committee in that we send it to our external partners. We get an objective view from them and some input about the case. And then we make a decision based on that referral. Is their decision, yes, this is a good case, we're going to move on? Or is the decision, yes, this is a good case, here's what we recommend the agreement between the two parties are? Because they come up with an agreement to, to sort of make amends for what happened. Sure. It's truly just a, an assessment on whether they think that case is appropriate. Okay. The um, Commonwealth Attorney is included in that group, so they have a, uh, a large portion in that case being appropriate or not. Okay. All right. And then once they approve it, where's the next step? So once they approve it, we again rely on our external partners for the practitioner side so that a restorative justice practitioner can facilitate a circle process, bring all parties together and um, come to that agreement it's as, like as a you spoke Correct. It's okay. it's like a mediator. Um, there is an extensive screening process. So the officer has been trained in restorative justice, but when it's referred to one of the practitioners, one of their initial responses is to do a pre-screening to make sure all parties understand what it is they're doing, how they're participating, and what the expectations are, are gonna be as they move forward. Okay, so once they have those expectations, does does that length of time vary based on the the severity of the crime? Does it is it just whatever's agreed upon? In my opinion, one of the greatest attributes of restorative justice is the opportunity for uh, there be a, an impact in the lives fr from all parties. So the, at the end of the process of what the obligations are, it's truly a collaboration between all the people at the table getting an equal opportunity to speak about how they were harmed, how those harms affected them, how their trust was broken, and what they need to be able to move forward and reestablish those relationships. So the, the victim can speak about what it is that they're dealing with. Because we often know that um, Crime will, will drive fear, but the fear of crime drives a lot more. 
We see this when we have a, a single burglary in a neighborhood and then the rest of the block is locking their doors, turning on their lights, buying security cameras. So it changed an entire neighborhood, changed their behavior on, on how they reacted to the situation. So being able to come to the table and, and talk about those harms and each person having a voice in that process to include the police officer. The police officer, we view them as a, a very important piece of this process and to be able to talk about how they were harmed and what obligations they would like to see coming out of this process because they were part of this incident. They were affected by this incident, so they should have an opportunity to talk about what's going to make them whole again. Okay, so the officer is also a part of that process. Absolutely. Okay, now you had talked about the officers receiving training earlier. How many hours of training do the officers receive and where do they do they get it in the police academy? Do they get it external from that? Because this is this is not something that every community is doing. Um, now it's an international program because I know uh, at least according to restorativejustice.org over 40 countries are doing a program like this. But I don't think everyone in the area is doing this, correct? That, that is correct. There are very few programs within a police agency that is doing restorative justice to the extent that we are. There's other municipalities that may have an opportunity through court services to provide restorative justice practices, but it's very unique to find it working and living within a police department like our agency. Okay. So how many, how many hours does a police officer get in training to identify the right victims and uh, subjects? So in 2015, when we started our program, we handpicked about 30 police officers and supervisors to go through an extensive uh, session of restorative justice training. Okay. From there, moving forward, we thought it would be best practice to focus our um, education on our new officers. So when the Harrisonburg Police Department hires a new police officer, they go to the police academy and the police academy will teach them what it is to be a police officer to the standard of DCJS, what right. the state requires. Which is the Department of Criminal Justice and they basically develop a curriculum to train someone as a police officer. Correct. Okay. After they graduate the police academy, they come to the Harrisonburg Police Department and then we do a post academy and we train them what the expectations are for our police department and what it's like to police our community. Okay. And part of that training is restorative justice training. Okay. So we'll, we'll spend about uh, four hours uh, with these new officers teaching them um, and training them on restorative justice practices and allowing them to participate in a circle process. Okay. So it's it's part of it's a part of their initial orientation through the police department on on what to recognize on the victim side. I've gone through the process. I've I've done the what is agreed upon between me and the person. What's the what's the next step? So again, as I described, I, it, in my twenty five years of law enforcement, um, I've never had an opportunity to participate in a, a process such as restorative justice. This process is very victim-centric. It allows the victim to participate in the process, to have a voice in the process, and collaborate with everybody at the table and, and talk about how everyone was harmed. So the, the process, depending on how many people are involved, um, 
how many sessions we have, how many circle processes. It, it could take anywhere from a couple weeks to a couple months. The obligations depends on the group also. Sure. Um, I've had obligations from one circle process that um, all they wanted was an apology. Okay. And they were able to come to an agreement at the end of the process and we move forward with no other obligations. I've had other processes where the obligations took about three months and it was a lot more extensive where the victims wanted the offenders to participate through doing community service. Um, these offenders lived out of the area, but they wanted them to return to Harrisonburg because this is the community that they affected, so they wanted them to do their community service here. So that took them a little longer to do. There were obligations of reflection papers over several months. There was uh, restitution. So this one process took over three months for the end result where all the offenders were able to meet all their obligations and it was a successful conclusion. Okay. So then once it's a successful conclusion, what happens after that then? So once we meet the, the obligations and the, it's an actual contract that uh, all parties uh, agree to, and once that is completed, then the practitioners reach back out to me as the police coordinator and let me know that it was successfully completed, all obligations have been met, and the case is, is now resolved. So as a police coordinator, depending on where the case is within our system, I would either contact the Commonwealth Attorney's Office if this was a post-arrest case and then ask the Commonwealth Attorney's Office to have the, pro the charges um, dismissed. Or if it's a pre-arrest, then I would just do a police report closing out the incident that the Commonwealth Attorney's Office is refusing to prosecute at this point. Okay. What would happen if they don't meet their obligations? If they don't meet their obligations, then the practitioners reach back out to me and we talk about, is there... Is there another opportunity that the individuals need to try to to meet their obligations? Did we not give them enough time or resources to to meet their objective? And if ultimately it comes down to they're just failing to participate, then that case is going to be put back into the traditional judicial system and continue forward. So if it's a pre-arrest, then I will reach out to the initial police officer and then that officer will be seeking warrants and arresting the individual for the crime that he committed right if it's post arrest then the case is put back on the docket and then it'll be tried in court okay so how many cases are put through the system each year so over the last two years i took over in 2017 and over the last two years we've averaged nine cases the last two years. Okay. And those are nine referrals. Those are cases that are submitted to me from either a police officer, somebody from the public, or our judicial system. To me, nine seems like a low number. Is there something that could help the police department have a much higher referral rate, or because of the intensity of the program, it's hard to get a higher number? I think we can do a better job of making referrals, but in order to get successful cases, there has to be that component of participation. And what happens is 
and I agree with you. I, I would like to have a lot more referrals and I'd love, I'd like to have a lot more cases, but and until somebody becomes a victim of a crime, you don't know what it is they're going to want out of that process. And I actually had a case last year where we had a victim who was a restorative justice practitioner that was victimized. And when we approached that individual and asked if they would like to do restorative justice, that individual refused and said, no, I want this person to be arrested and I want to go through the traditional system. So, you know, until you are the victim, until you're in those shoes, right. it's hard to say what it is that's appropriate. And on the other side, when you're talking about the offender, it is a little bit of a leap of faith for them in the moment to admit their wrongdoing and tell a police officer, yes, I am the one that, that did that crime, or yes, I am the one that destroyed that property and taking ownership for it. What we often see is police officer will go out to investigate a crime and the offender will refuse to talk to the officer or the offender will ask for an attorney or the offender will just lie to the officer and say, I didn't do that. Right. Um, prove it. And, and therefore there's... They're forcing themselves into the system. Correct. And therefore there's not an opportunity for restorative justice because they need to be able to participate um, in the process. Right. Have you ever had, you know, we're, we're only talking about a handful of cases, two handfuls of cases a year. Have you ever had a process fail where the person went through the whole process, everything was agreed upon, and you came back and they created another offense? They were brought back into the criminal justice system or at least started to because they committed another crime. Sure. When, when I do a presentation, I often ask a question about what what do you think the reason why the Harrisburg Police Department would have a restorative justice program? And a lot of times I will get the answer to reduce recidivism. Um, and yes, it does impact recidivism, but... And for people who don't know it, basically recidivism, and I'm going to say that wrong, means they committed a crime or something of that nature. And reoffended. So... Statistically, what I've read is, is it's at a fairly low margin under 30% where it does affect that. But the, uh, the one case that, that I can recall, uh, we had a group of individuals that went into the restorative justice program and um, two of the three individuals have reoffended since that opportunity. Okay. Now... My understanding is that original case was either dropped from the docket, basically they weren't charged. If they reoffend, is that information brought back up of, hey, look, we gave them an opportunity to make amends for this and now they've committed another crime. Does that second case get brought back up or is that considered gone? It's, it's pretty much considered gone in the sense that it never went to court. Right. So the, uh, the court system can't use that as a guideline about this is your second offense or your third offense because it went an alternative path and didn't go into the system. Would they be allowed to do restorative justice a second time? It, it, again, it really depends on the situation. I never want to say never, but um, for the most part, when we look at people that want to participate they need to be restorative in, in nature. And if they reoffend in a short period of time, then they're probably not restorative by nature and would have a hard time participating to a successful process. Sure. 
What I like about the restorative justice program is, and you keep calling it a circle because it is, it includes all the parties that were affected as part of this, from the victim to the suspect to the police, anyone who was affected in some form or fashion, and they all have a say, in essence, as to what the outcome of this is. If the criminal justice system was set up in a, a, in a way similar to what it is, but the victim's family get a say in some of that, would that benefit the, at least the victims? So I, I can give you two, two examples. Um, one example is of a incident that we had in the city that involved a strong arm robbery mm -hmm. with a group of juveniles. And our patrol officers went out, they investigated the, the case. Uh, it was sent to criminal investigations. The detective did a great job on putting the case together, identifying the offenders and all parties involved. And we were ready to present the case to the Commonwealth uh, for charges. And in that case, I was contacted by the mother of the victim in the crime. And the mother had a restorative justice background and requested for the case to go into restorative justice. So I kind of took a step back and as the coordinator, you know, I thought, well, who am I to disagree with her, who is the mother of the victim, and say that it needs to go in this traditional system when if we truly believe that the system under restorative justice is victim-centric, then they should have that opportunity or that voice. Right. So we were able to reach out to the Commonwealth Attorney, uh, put it forward to the referral committee, and that case did go through restorative justice based on the victim's interest in pursuing that route. Okay. However, um, you know there are going to be offenses that are not going to be appropriate for restored justice. Sure, absolutely. If we have a heinous crime, such as a homicide, yep. um, you know, I'm sure the, the, the situation of the case is not going to be appropriate for restored justice. However, there's been a fairly rich history of restorative justice practices coming in after the criminal process and providing opportunities for parties to come back together to get that closure and still have a process after the criminal trial is over. I want to thank Lieutenant Pollard for talking with me about the restorative justice program. This is a program I think would benefit growing not only in Harrisonburg, but in the communities around us. You can learn more about the restorative justice program at the Harrisonburg Police Department's website. You can also find the police department on Facebook and Twitter. Don't forget to like the program and comment if you have questions or want to learn more. I will include a link to Harrisonburg Police's restorative justice program in the description below, as well as other resources you can find about the topic. Next week, we have two special episodes being released on June 16th at the start of the fire services safety stand down week 2019. The focus this year is on firefighter cancer. Until next time, have a safe week. Thank you for listening to Rocktown Emergencies, a podcast focused on emergency services in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. You can follow Rocktown Emergencies on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find the podcast on most of your favorite podcast apps. If you want to email Paul, you can email him at paul at rocktownemergencies.com. Join us next time for Rocktown Emergencies and have a safe week.